today, we land the plane on where we've been over the past eight weeks, a teaching series called How to Read the Bible, Navigating the Library of Scripture. The past eight weeks have been our attempt as a community of finding and building a paradigm for engaging with and reading the scriptures that's more faithful to the way that Jesus read the Bible, the way Jesus of Nazareth understood the scriptures. See, as a room right now gathered up of of many of us in this room being Christians, some of you likely being skeptics or investigators of Jesus, we are all here in this room spending our Sunday here because at some level, we are interested in the person of Jesus and the ongoing impact that he has 2,000 years later. We are all here because in some level, we find Jesus at least interesting enough that he's worth not sleeping in on a Sunday or maybe even maybe giving our whole lives to. And what we've been coming back to time and again is this simple truth that we cannot fully understand Jesus apart from the story that he claims to fulfill. We cannot fully understand the teachings of Jesus without understanding the scriptures that he's quoting and basing his teachings in. We can't follow Jesus without following his paradigm for how he relates to, how he understands the scriptures. And so the past eight weeks have been our attempt at reading the Bible more like Jesus. And so in that first week, if you were here with us, we examined uh, some of our pre-existing faulty paradigms for reading the Bible, many of them based in good tuitions, based in good intuitions, which ultimately fall short as we spend our life reading within those paradigms. And so for many of us, we've reached a point of maybe uh, disillusionment or frustration with the scriptures, largely because we've been reading with the paradigm that was given to us maybe in our earliest years. And while good, at the same time, fell short. And so after examining some of those pre-existing faulty paradigms, we've been making our way through our working definition of the Bible. You'll see it again behind me, which is the Bible is the library of ancient writings, both divine and human, that tell a unified story leading us to Jesus and forming us as his people. And so in that second week, if you were with us, we looked at uh, the scriptures as both divine and human, or in the words of Paul, inspired. Then we looked at the scriptures as a unified, not just a book, but a unified library telling a unified story that in our next week we looked at leads to Jesus, that the Bible is messianic literature. It's all about the Messiah, who Jesus is. After that, we had my friend Ryan McDonald as we looked at the pronouns in our definition, that the Bible is communal literature. It is not just for me as a myself, but us communally as a people. And all along as we've been going through this, we've been uh, reading the Bible within this framework through these practices within our discipleship groups like study, reading large portions together, or last week looking at uh, meditation on the scriptures, a prayerful reading of the scriptures that come because we believe that it's the divine word. And so today as we close out our series, I just want to examine the final words there in our definition. Is this idea that the scriptures have been given and are for forming us as Jesus's people, forming us as the people of Jesus. Or as Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3, 15 through 16, you'll see behind me, where Paul details the sacred scriptures as that which is able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. He continues that all scripture, if you have a, like a, you know, your little Bible pen right there, you underline all, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for, and then here we get this incredible list of teaching and rebuking, correcting for training in righteousness. And here's, here's the key thing I just wanna point out right now. So that, so that the person of God may be complete, or the, the word in the Greek behind that is mature, grown up, equipped for every good work. The end result of our reading of the scripture is not just believing the right information, but so that, as Paul says, we might be mature. Not just believing the right information, but undergoing a formation of our character. The end goal of the scriptures is not just that you would believe in Jesus as vital and central as that is, but that you might become like him. What Paul writes in 2 Corinthians as being formed into the image of Christ. If we have a reading of the Bible that doesn't end with us slowly, degree by degree, becoming more like Jesus, then we're not reading it rightly. 
Now, though this truth might be assumed by many of us in the room today, most of you, yeah, if I follow Jesus, that means that at some level my character is becoming more like him, sure. Today, what I want to consider is how does the Bible actually do that work? How does the Bible actually, or, or better said, how does God through the scriptures do that work of formation? How does that happen? If you've got your Bible open to Matthew chapter 7, verse 24 through 27 is what we're going to read today. Um, if you want to join me in standing once you're there for the reading of the scriptures today. Seeing as how we started off our series in Matthew chapter 4 with Jesus in the wilderness, uh, it seemed fitting to end our series once again with the teachings of Jesus. And so here we come, what we're about to read comes at the tail end of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' greatest hits compilation of uh, what he's been up to. Uh, the, the Sermon on the Mount opening with him uh, claiming to fulfill all of the scriptures, him detailing some of the important laws like murder and adultery and uh, making oaths and him taking them in a deeper way, him detailing the key components of the life of his disciples as being a life of prayer, fasting, and giving to the poor. And all this builds up to what we're about to read. But let's first, let's pray over our time together today. So Holy Spirit, would you uh, one more time continue to shape us and to shape um, our way of relating to the Bible more and more in the way that uh, its authors, the way that Jesus would have us read it. Today, as we consider the issue of formation, God, ultimately what we see is uh, formation into being a person of wisdom. God, we pray that you would just be at work within us knowing that we have all come from all over the place this past week, some of us um, sliding into this room exhausted, some of us um, emerging barely victorious out of the battle with children to just get out of the door on time, some of us with loss on the tail end of this past week, some of us uh, dreading maybe what's coming up in the next seven days. God, we just hold whatever it is that, that we are carrying within us today. And God, my prayer is that for the next few moments that we would just hand those things over to you, allowing you to hold them as we sip through your word and allow it to shape us and speak to us today. And so, Spirit, speak through your word. Your servants are listening. Matthew chapter 7, verse 24, Jesus says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them, or as it can be translated, does them, or as it can be translated, puts them into practice. Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell and the rivers rose and the winds blew and compounded against that house, pounded against that house. Yet it did not collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them, doesn't do them, doesn't put them into practice, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded that house, and it collapsed. It collapsed with a great crash. Go ahead and be seated. For Jesus here in the Sermon on the Mount, the benefit of his words, and we can infer with them all of the words of Scripture, come not just in our hearing, but in our acting, our doing, our putting into practice. It is the difference between being wise and foolish. It's not enough to simply hear the teachings of Scripture. It's not enough to read the words of Jesus. It's not enough to simply hear the wisdom is in the doing. The wisdom is the putting into practice. As Jesus' little brother, or little half-brother, maybe we might say, James, would repeat Jesus' words with a new metaphor, not speaking of construction on sand or on the rock, but of reflection. James 1, you'll see behind me, beginning in verse 22. Just notice, James clearly was listening to the Sermon on the Mount. As he writes in his letter, "...but be doers, practitioners of the word." And not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like someone who looks at his own face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and then goes away and immediately forgets what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer who works, this person will be blessed in what he does." 
hearing and doing, looking intently at and persevering. This is the difference between either wisdom or what James says is the way of blessing or what Jesus calls the way of foolishness or the way of forgetfulness, as James puts it. How are we formed? More and more into a person of Jesus. So these sorts of passages, among many others in the New Testament, would tell us the way that we are formed into Christ's likeness is by putting what we find, what we hear, what we read into practice. This is a formation through participation. Rather than simply believing that formation, you becoming more like Jesus, comes through inspiration or information, the framework that we have throughout the New Testament and through all the scriptures is a formation that comes by your participation in what you're reading and finding here. Now, before I come back and take this a little bit deeper, hear me for a moment, because this can be misheard. All of this talk of formation doesn't cancel what we talked about earlier in this series of the Bible as being messianic. That is that it leads us to Jesus. The Bible still absolutely brings us to Jesus. It shows us our deep need for a savior, for forgiveness, and for the life that Jesus has. But because we believe that that's not where the story stops, but like we said a moment ago, being formed into the image of Jesus, the Bible is simultaneously formational literature for us and messianic because those are the same thing. What we're being formed into is the image of Jesus. And so it would make sense that all messianic literature would be the kind of thing that would shape us as his people. Does that make sense? So this doesn't mean that we're moving on from messianic literature. We're taking it into the life of his people. Now, why do I make such a contrast here between formation through participation and not just inspiration or information? And that is largely because most of us have a faulty paradigm for how we become Jesus' people. How do I become, let's use the fruit of the the spirit as the example, a more loving, a more patient, a more peaceful, a kind, a self-controlled, a gentle. How do I become that kind of a person? Most of us have a framework that the way that that happens is through inspiration or from information. And so you can find this in different traditions within the church. An inspiration one would be what you need most is something that stirs your heart up and gets you excited about being a patient person and stirs you up with all of this energy of like why you should be patient and why patience is awesome and patience is good. And you're like, yes, I want to be a patient person. And then you get sent out of the door on an emotional high of the sort of patient, what a patient person's life would look like. But for most of us that we find about three days in, or if you're anything like me, about three seconds in, that patience goes out the window. Without being overly... um, like black and white on this, this is largely the framework that you find within a charismatic or a Pentecostal tradition. I've been a part of that, would still consider myself, kind of got one foot in there. So this doesn't come as a critique, but just an acknowledgement that most charismatic Pentecostal preaching is the fired up, energetic, we're all getting excited about sermons and ways of relating to the Bible that we expect the Bible to work like a halftime in the locker room speech. Patience, 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 rah, rah, rah. And everybody goes out and, you know, and we just get like smacked over the back half of the game. So some of us have a formation through inspiration and then this just doesn't lead to the life that we're looking for. Others of us, another tradition that I've been a part of and some of you have been in is a formation through information, which is the belief that if you get the right doctrines and theology into your brain, it will lead to you being the right kind of person. And so this is more of the Reformed or Calvinistic. And so what is this? Every week, what people need to hear is the gospel of Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And like, you suck. Jesus is awesome. Woo! Like, come to the table. Come have communion. And we go really deep on all of the theology that you need in your mind. But then what that leads to is, over time, not as much formation as what we're actually looking for. This is the system that, I mean, this is, you can put it in the Reformed Calvinist kind of tradition is Martin Luther, who he said the primary work of the preacher is to beat the gospel into people's heads. Not guiding in formation, beat the gospel into people's heads in a belief that over time, the image of Jesus will come out of people. Now, what I'm saying today is not we don't need inspiring sermons or not that we need good doctrine in our heads, but those two things are not enough. The invitation of the Spirit is, yes, inspiration and information, but our participation, our putting into practice what we're reading, our doing what we find within the Scriptures. So then the question comes when we think about the Bible, how do we hear and do it? How do we enter into this pathway of formation through participation? 
And the way many of us have once again found this is through that paradigm we looked at back in our first week of the Bible as a moral handbook, like a reference, like, you know, moral guide handbook that what, what we do is we have some kind of question about what I should do or not do. And so we flip through the Bible looking for, you know, one verse that really simply puts in a punching like, thou shalt. Okay, cool. That's what I thou shalt do or not shalt do. We operate with the Bible as this kind of reference book, a moral handbook. And though this is a good intuition that brings a, a desire or at least an assumption that the Bible brings instruction for how I should flourish and can flourish as a human, though the Bible should inform me about what it means to have a right relationship with God and others, we go searching through the Bible for clear thou shalt verses for us. And the problem that we find very quickly is that most of the Bible is not clear thou shalt's. Most of it's narrative and poetry. And so how do I put into practice the story of Joseph? How do I do the story of Ruth? What is it for me, you know, it's for me to like, you know, be a Psalm 120. How do I do Psalm 121 or Psalm 42? How do I do the Psalm 37? How do I do Psalm 37? It's a poem. I can do thou shalt not murder. I mean, hopefully. But poetry, how do you do Poetry. So that's the first problem with the moral handbook. And the second is, even more, even those really clear rules alongside them, sometimes a verse after them, are rules that aren't very clear. Or rules and commands that are clearly for a different time. So a great example of this is in the letter of 1 Corinthians, where Paul's writing to this really messy church in Corinth. And in 1 Corinthians 6 and following, he has some really helpful insight on marriage and sexuality and the life of the church. And it's like very like clear you know, take it and apply it. We're ready to go. Thanks, Paul. And then he moves in the following chapters to talking about food that's been sacrificed to idols. And okay, that's not an issue in this church. So what do I, does that mean, what do I do with all of those, that whole, all those chapters now? We're not, nobody in the church is getting in a fight over food that's been sacrificed to idols right now. That's not like a, you know, a pastoral meeting that I have every single week. Like, you know, I've just, I've got a standing appointment for dealing with you guys freaking out because so-and-so, you know, offered up their steak or their tofu to Baal or whatever. That's not a regular thing here. And so it just leaves me going, what, what do I do with a Bible that has really clear commands and then other things that have like, I just no basis for speaking to me? It seems for every clear command that we find in Scripture that it becomes actually easy for me to do or not do. There are hundreds of chapters of narrative and poetry and, and then commands that are really strange and like are not my context or culture. And so again, to go back to 2 Timothy, if the Bible is so that our character is formed, so that we are equipped for every good work, so that we are mature, so that we are complete, growing into the image of Jesus, we just have to acknowledge it must not be through a moral to-do list of commands. That must not be the way the Bible's doing it because that's not what the Bible's doing. We need a paradigm for, as we read from Paul, all underlined scripture teaches, rebukes, corrects, and trains. We need a paradigm for how Paul's writings on food that's been sacrificed to idols teaches, rebukes, corrects, and trains. And so in the final paradigm for how we're reading the Bible in a way that's more in line with Jesus and just simply it seems what the Bible itself is up to, our final paradigm for formation through participation, of formation through doing the scripture, happens through us seeing the Bible not as a rule book but as wisdom literature, if you're taking notes, as wisdom literature. Now for most of you, in the room, when you hear wisdom literature, you think of those categories in the Old Testament like Ecclesiastes or Proverbs. Now, just to be clear, wisdom literature is an external identification of those books. That's not, Proverbs doesn't say, hi, it's me, wisdom literature. Ecclesiastes isn't like, please, you know, classify me as wisdom literature rather than gospel. Those are, those are categories that we've placed on them. But when we think about why do we call these books wisdom literature, is when we read through Proverbs like we did last year or Ecclesiastes back this spring, what we find in those books is writings which shift the way that we see ourselves, that shift the way we view our decisions and our world. And as they get us to think in new ways, they end up shaping our own thinking that then ends up leading to new ways of living. 
So Proverbs and Ecclesiastes wisdom literature gives us a vision for a different kind of world that as we begin to see that kind of world, we imagine ourselves within that and then begin to start participating in that world itself. And it does this through really weird sometimes visions and stories in the Proverbs. You know, Proverbs is, you know, as a fool returns their folly, like a dog returns to its vomit. And you're just like, I'll never forget that ever again. Like, uh, like whenever I think about me returning back to my stupid, I just think of my, my awful dog, you know, that's like always going after like, you just, you already ate it. Why are you going back for more? <laughs> or like last week in Psalm chapter one, which is wisdom literature, even within the Psalms, is it portrays a way of life as the tree of life, a tree that's by this river abiding and growing and thriving and fruitful and chaff. Two visions that shift the way I think about my life and myself and then end up leading to a new way of living and being. And so Proverbs, again, did this through viewing our life if you were with us. What was the the first half of Proverbs doing? For those of you that were with us, the whole first half of Proverbs is getting you to view your life like your own story of Genesis 1 through 3, of standing before the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and an invitation into taking for yourself and determining what's wise and what you want to do, or do you trust God? And so you now view your life not as just me bumping around through my life, but every day is me standing before the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the serpents you know, whispering into my ear, can you really trust God? And so Proverbs gives you a whole new way of viewing your life that then the rest of the book then starts to detail how to live into that sort of wisdom. Or Ecclesiastes, what we were with all this past spring, was getting you to shift your thinking about your ideas of success and what really lasts. Through that repeated Hebrew word of hevel, smoke, everything is a vapor. It slips through your fingers. You see, in these books, wisdom, or the Hebrew word chokmah, is practical know-how. It's about craftsmanship, being able to build something. It's about leadership. It's about decision-making. It's about moral discernment. And it gets you to see the world and yourself and your relationships in a new way so that you might begin thinking in a new way, renewed in your mind to start living in a renewed sort of way, being formed into a person more like Jesus. And this isn't just Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, or Job. This is how all the Bible works. It's about shifting the way that you think getting you to imagine yourself in a new posture, a new mode of life. This works rather than, like we talked about, a moral to-do list that's just working to control your behavior through a list. Wisdom literature is looking to shape your mind into a new sort of person. As Richard Foster writes, you'll see behind me, the aim is not external conformity, whether to doctrine or deed, but the reformation of the inner self, the place of thought and feeling of will and character. And he quotes from a handful of little passages. Behold, cries the psalmist, you desire truth in the inward being. Therefore, teach me wisdom in my heart. And then he continues, create in me a clean heart, O God. Put a new and right spirit within me. Or again, it is in the inner person that's being renewed day by day. The external formation of our character begins through a renewing of our minds and our hearts, which comes as we enter into and are shaped by the wisdom, the chokmah of the scriptures. Seeing ourselves in reality in a new way, rather than just like little commands, the scriptures are trying to shape you into a different person. Now, this way of reading the Bible makes total sense if you've been with us all the way back to the Bible as a unified story. What is at the heartbeat of the scriptures is the God who desires to have a partnership with human beings, for them to be shaped like him and reflecting him into their lives. The story of scripture, and so of course it would be the way that we read the Bible, is that is not the story of a God who's looking to be the moral taskmaster of religious automatons, but rather the father of children who have been shaped by his word and then are able to move out into their lives facing the complexity of their world, not by simply abiding by little black and white commands, but by being a a different kind of person, a more like my father kind of person. And so this is, I mean, immediately, we just know this is true. Like think about parenting right now. Some of you, this is, your, this is your felt experience this morning. For some of you, you, you can imagine. So we have a two-year-old um, tyrant 
and a five-year-old diva that is putting it so lightly. I have a two-year-old incredible wonder of energy and a five-year-old that's just looking to be affirmed that she is worth being loved. And so I have to meet them in odd every single day. Sorry, this just turned into my therapy session. Um, so here's the thing. In, in our home, we have rules. We also have stories. We have songs. We have practices and rhythms that we do as a family. And the, the point of these is though they do have immediate impact on their behavior is not to stop there. I know that all the rules, commands, stories, and rhythms we have built in my home are not for the sake of my own peace and patience with my two and five-year-old, but the kind of adult they're going to be on the other side of it. I'm setting a context, a wor- I'm shifting the way they think about the world through these commands so that as they grow and one day move out, they think in a different way. This is true with bedtime. If Emma is calling me at 8.30 when she's like 40, and she's like, okay, I'm going, you know, I, I'm going to go to bed now. Like, I, I don't care. Like, you're an adult now. Like, my main, and, and you may even have, like, you know, things that people are wanting to do past 8 o'clock. Go out and be with them. The whole point of going to bed at this time is I'm trying to set you into a simple posture and rhythm of going to bed at an, a time that's going to give you enough time to rest and to actually, like, be a productive, like, little human being the next day. So I'm not even looking at immediate commands and rules for her that she's always going to be going to bed at 8.30. I'm looking for her to become a kind of person who just knows to value sleep and how good that is for herself. The whole point is I'm trying to raise someone not who's just abiding simply by black and white commands, though there will be some of those. Like right now with Arlo, don't hit your sister. I hope that command always sticks with her. Though she may take the, 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 the principle of don't hit your brother, which is honoring and loving others, Though she may take that deeper than I have to command right now, I hope that she never like breaks the hitting one, but still takes it deeper. More on that in a moment. And I just, I know this brings tension for us because we have an age, we're in a moment of simple and on demand. Like you can just look up, you can Google anything that you want. And so what we do is then we come to the Bible and we want like a Google reference book, search and find wiki for like singleness. And then we get like, you know, all of our commands for what I'm supposed to do in this stage of life. Parenting, and we get all the commands I need for this stage of life. Just tell me what to do. But God's desire is not just to tell you what to do, but to shape you into who to be. The scriptures is how he's doing that to be a person who is able to face the complexities that are represented in this room alone. In this room alone, where you've got married, you've got single, you've got, we have, we have widows, we have, we have young people that are like bumping their heads through their like, you know, youngness. We have some of us that are mature and trying to figure out what this season of life looks like within us. The economic differences, the stage of life, like there's so many differences here that a, a clean, like couple handful of rules that we all abide by, while might be helpful, we need something that moves us deeper where the formation of Jesus is able to show up in all of those varying stages and ways of life. And so rather than giving us just clear verses, God's goal is for us to figure out how to be a right, a wise person that moves out into our lives re- reflecting that wisdom. And again, that doesn't mean that like, you know, that means we can murder because we're taking it to a deeper command. It means that we're, we're, we're well, let's we'll just talk about it. Okay, here we go. So I want to do a couple moments of taking this really practically, and then we'll kind of begin to wind down because so far it's like, okay, cool. The Bible's weird, Ryan. Like, how does that work? So I just want to do two little things, and then we'll, we'll begin to kind of wind down. So the first is I want to examine this framework with some of the really clear commands of the Bible, and then I'm going to examine with like the really weird ones that seem out of context or just aren't clear. Sound good? Really quick, and then we'll, we'll begin to land the plane, and we'll, we'll come to a time of response with the presence of Jesus. So sometimes we read through the Bible, and the wisdom is clear. Don't murder. <laughs> Got that one, Right? Don't commit adultery. Don't lie. Like, those are just clear. That's a very clear reading. So you find these things like in the Ten Commandments, some of which I just quoted from. Or like last week, if you're with us, in Psalm chapter 1, you read Psalm 1. Who's the blessed person? The one who meditates day and night on the instruction of the Lord. And so what's the, what's the clear wisdom there? Meditate day and night on the instruction and wisdom of the Lord. Cool. But when we move from this being just to-do list tasks of like, you know, do or do not do, rather to wisdom, we step in line with what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount. So the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about the clear commands and the Ten Commandments, but then takes them deeper, doesn't he? So what does Jesus say? He says, oh, you've heard it said, do not murder. And then he takes it deeper into a place of wisdom 
where the command is not just about not killing someone. It's about not hating. It's about honoring. Jesus equates murder with you looking at another human being and saying, you fool. Calling another human stupid, Jesus equates with murder. Why does he do that? Not because they're the same thing, but they both derive from the same wisdom of honoring other human beings. Do you see the wisdom? He does the same thing with adultery. Do not commit adultery. You've heard it say that. I tell you, anyone who looks at another human being with lustful intent has committed adultery in their heart. Is Jesus saying that lust is the same thing as adultery? No, he's saying they're both derived from the same wisdom principle, what a wise person is like. They don't objectify other human beings, either that is with their actual physical bodies or even with their minds. Jesus said, you've heard it say, don't, don't take an oath. I tell you, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Is the wisdom, the wisdom goes deeper than just the oath command. It goes into my yes is my yes and my no is no. I'm a person that can be depended on and trusted. I'm trustworthy, a person of wisdom. Or to use poetry as another example of this. We saw in Psalm 1, I did this in real time for you guys last, last week. We looked at the clear, the clear calling to meditate on scripture from Psalm 1, but we also spent some time, didn't we, on the wisdom of Psalm 1 that goes a little bit deeper, which is a meditation on and a focusing on what our attention is going to. Does Psalm 1 clearly say, thou shalt audit your attention and consider your digital pathways and rhythms of what you're being formed by? No, Psalm 1 doesn't say that. It was written thousands of years before the iPhone. But how helpful was it for us to meditate on the wisdom of Psalm 1 and then to be able to take that into what does it mean to be a person of wisdom in 2022 where we've all got iPhones in our back pockets? You see the wisdom that takes it deeper without canceling out what it was always saying. Or to use the example of narrative, in the book of Genesis, for those of you that are familiar with the story of Abraham and Hagar, it's a story that is difficult to summarize quickly, but it really comes around the damage and danger of sexual assault. Abraham being promised a family line that's going to bless all the nations. And he's like this old guy, but there's this promise that there's going to be this family. He, he finds him and his wife are unable to get pregnant. And so Abraham steps out by his wife's advisement to take her handmaiden, her servant, Hagar, and to impregnate her. And then we'll, we'll get the promise that God gave us, right? Now, at the base reading, this is a warning of sexual assault of a woman being utilized and not brought within, right? That's going on there. There's also within that a deeper, so on one level, most of us would read that and go, yes, there's definite practical application of that in most of our lives, and maybe some of our lives. But when we take that a little bit deeper and realize what's the wisdom, what's the heart behind this story? Is someone distrusting God's promises that he's given and so believing that God's not gonna fulfill what he said, I'm gonna go after and grasp for myself and do whatever I need to to get the thing that God's promised me rather than waiting. And that story immediately becomes something that's not applicable to some of us, but to all of us because we're seeing the wisdom that's there. Are you guys tracking with this way of reading the scriptures? Each of these are examples of how we read the Bible when we're looking for wisdom and formation rather than a clean, you know, black and white, 10, 10 numbered to-do list. The Bible has far more to say on our lives. It has far more to say than just, you not murdering people and you thinking that somehow you're like in the image of Jesus. Like, does, is that true? Absolutely. <laughs> but like, there's a deeper work of what wisdom is inviting you into. Now, what of the commands, stories, and poems that aren't clear? Those things that are confusing or the things that are clear and the fact that they're clearly given to another context that's different to ours. So a good example that I mentioned a moment ago is 1 Corinthians and food sacrificed to idols. We could talk about agricultural commands in, in the Torah, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. We could talk about building plans in, Levitic, in the Torah or the temple sacrifices in the Old Testament or the story of the Tower of Babel. Like all these weird, like I read those and I go, what does that have to do with me? What wisdom might that have for us? Those are not clear commands. What am I meant to, or they're not clearly commanded for me because I don't know what my life has to do with the building plans of a Bronze Age house or I don't own a farm. So I don't know what these agricultural commands mean for me. So the first thing that we have to do whenever we're coming in contact with these sorts of passages is upload and enter into the previous practices that we've been looking at over this series. When I don't know what's going on, I, I use all the study tools that we've been like developing over the past eight weeks. I, I bring that into a communal reading where I'm talking about that within my discipleship group or with pastors. I'm working through that. And then I'm meditating on it. 
I'm just praying, God, what is it that you're speaking and what you're saying within all of this? And we do that so that we can best understand what's going on behind the commands. We're trying to get to the wisdom behind what seems immediately not clear or complex. So just a quick few examples just to show that this is possible. To return back to 1 Corinthians and food sacrifice to idols, what Paul was dealing with in the church of Corinth is you had a group of people who now coming out of their old pagan ways look at the idols and people sacrificing their food to them and goes, those idols are nothing. They're just stone. They're just wood. They're just iron. They're nothing. And so if the food sacrifice, I don't, it doesn't mean anything. I can eat the steak and I'm going to be fine. I can eat the food because the idol is nothing. But you had others within the Corinthian community that had come out of those religious systems and said, no, they're actually, though those yes are not God, those, there are spiritual beings that are tied up within that worship practice. And that is something that you should not be bringing into your home. And so what Paul is trying to do is, how do I get a church, a people commune, like living together, doing church, family life together with that stark of a difference? And that's what he's trying to process through in 1 Corinthians. And he works to this process of, hey, you guys don't judge one another in the midst of your, your, um, your, your beliefs on this, but also you guys don't use your differences here as an opportunity to make one another stumble. So he tells the people that are more free, don't cause people to stumble for that. Don't be bringing that in or you know, don't, don't force them to do something that their conscience forbades. And those of you that have a stronger conscience, don't judge the people in the community that, that feel more open. And so we go, oh, that actually has a lot of implications in the life of the local church today. Like I regularly had, one, I'm trying to remember who it was, but we had a whole conversation about like yoga and like, the, like should Christians do yoga, right? Because on one level, it's stretching, right? Like that, it's, it's really good stretching. But for others, there's far more spiritual, like potential, like, you know, whatever stuff that's going on within that. And here you go, 1 Corinthians, man. Like what, what is the church supposed to do with yoga? I think you could do a 1 Corinthians way of paving that forward in the same sort of way. For some of you, you guys can't, yeah, it, I'm going and I'm stretching. It's not a spiritual thing for me. And it's like, okay, cool. Don't cause the people that have an issue with that to stumble for their practice. Those of you that have an issue with that's fine. Don't judge the brother and sister that, that, gets, that gets their yoga on right? You can apply this in all sorts of ways. And immediately, the Bible is speaking to our modern issues and the questions that we're having in the local church because we're chewing on it and we're thinking. Some other quick examples. Maybe the agricultural commands in Leviticus that are really strange and weird, like uh, thou shalt not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. So what, what, what is this command about? Back in the old world, you've got all of your grain down and you would, you would have the ox walk through it. And by him walking through the grain, he would be breaking apart the grain from all of the chaff, right? And so what you would do, because you don't want to lose any of your harvest, is you'd put a muzzle on the ox so that he doesn't what? Eat the grain while he's treading. So, so the whole command is, hey, that ox is working hard. Let him have a snack. That's, that's literally what the command is, is the worker deserves the wages of what they're, what they're producing, even if it's an ox. Like, so one, there's a whole side thing on this one day that we'll do on like environmentalism within the Bible, but... That's a whole nother thing. But what's so profound is we read that and we go, what does that have to do with, with my life today? Like the worker deserves to eat from their work. Paul in 1 Timothy quotes that passage and then goes like, that's why you should pay your pastors. Um, and so I love this Bible verse. I love meditating on, <laughs> on that command. But here, don't you see, Paul is, Paul is detailing for us exactly what I'm talking about here. Here he takes something that seems culturally at distant. There's no way that command means anything for today. And he brings it into the very real, very practical basis of how to do local church ministry. Another example of this, some of you who are in the Story of Justice series will remember this, that Leviticus details the building plans for the people once they get to the promised land. And one of the commands is that um, they have to build, if you're building a house up on the roof, you have to build this little fence called a parapet around it. And the reason you put a parapet up there is so that nobody should fall off and you bring like blood guilt on your home. So once again, nobody here is building Bronze Age homes. None of us are putting up parapets on our roof. None of us are getting up on our roofs on a regular basis. And yet this command is what? Let's think about this. Who is most prone to fall off the side of a roof? It's not the able-bodied people. It's the elderly. It's the young It's the more disabled, it's the more vulnerable. And so God is saying, even in your architecture of your home, I want you to think through how do you look out for those coming into your home that might be more vulnerable to falling off. And to the the chagrin and emails of some of you, I made a connection to this as being um, a great basis for us considering why masking was worthwhile during the time of the pandemic. They were our little parapets. 
are little forms of looking out for, taking things on ourselves to look out for those that are vulnerable, not necessarily just worrying about myself as the healthy. You think wearing a mask was frustrating? They had to build an extra fence around their rooftop, dragging all that lumber up. Why? Just in case, just because there might be someone that might fall off. And God says that blood guilt, that would be, you'll be responsible for that. And again, once again, we're talking a speed limit now. Like you can just take this into like, what does it mean to be a wise person? Immediate application in all of these different areas of life. I, this is why I love the Bible. Is these weird commands, you're like, what in the world? You just sit on it, chew on it, go for a walk, get together with a group and talk about it, and things start snapping. There's another weird Leviticus command about not slaughtering an ox, sheep, or goat outside the camp. And it says if you do, like you bring, like you're, you're guilty. Like it's like, it's like it's a moral imperative that you don't sacrifice your food, your animals out in the wilderness or outside of the tent you have to bring them to the altar where the priest, which is basically, you know, the, like, it's like the pastor and the butcher in one in ancient Israel. You had to bring it to them and they would, and it would be part of you receiving the meat for the rest of your food would also be this prayer of blessing over it, but also thanks and gratitude to God for the animal. And so this weird command, you just start thinking through it and it's based in the fact that for the ancient Israelites, the people of God, every meal was to be seen as a gift from God to be received with gratitude that this is not about my self-reliance and this is not just food. This is a gift from God. And so that practice that's been like all but lost by our generation of praying before meals, Leviticus has a great basis for it. I'm just grateful I don't have to drag a cow to a priest every single, I can just do it over my, my in and out with my kids. But you see the, do you see the, a wise person, a person shaped more into the image of Jesus isn't necessarily leading his cow off to be sacrificed, but it is the sort of person who with every single meal, I see this is not just about food for me. This is, this is a gift from God for me to be brought to the priest, there to be blessing and gratitude, a moment of worship to God before I take the cuts of meat back home and we have the barbecue. Or again, one last one, the Tower of Babel, the weird story of like all these people building up and you know, they got the one language and they get scattered all over the earth. Well, let's just think about the story of the power of Babel a little bit. It's a story about humans who seek to make a name for themselves apart from God. And how do they do it? Through building a tower. And what does the text tell us, if you read closely, is that they're specifically able to do it through a new technology of oven-fired bricks. And so they've got this, look at this new thing we've got. These oven, we can build taller and higher than ever before because these bricks can stack with mortar on top. So we can build this giant, make a name for ourselves. One language, let's all build up together and we will have a place among the gods. And then God comes in and is like, no, and, you know, they get scattered off to the thing, the pride and hubris of it all. And here in that weird story, what you find is when we're reading it through the principle of wisdom is that this is actually a reflection on humans and technology. What happens when we get a new technology is we look at it and we go, we can make a name for ourselves. We can become like gods. We can all come together with one voice and we can build the thing that we're all looking And every single time, because it's based in human hubris and pride, it always doesn't lead to us coming together, but us being scattered further apart. Talking about Facebook right now, the elections and all the political stuff. Come on, you just jacking with me? Do you see that when we start reading the Bible in this way, it's speaking immediately to all of the wisdom and the foolishness of our world if we just sit and read it slowly enough in community. This is the sort of, per, this is the sort of work that Paul was talking about in Romans chapter 12 when he wrote, you'll see behind me, do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed through the renewal of your mind. And then he says, why? so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. We might paraphrase that. Be transformed through the renewal of your mind so that you may be wise, so you may be formed into a person of wisdom. And so if you can also just Greek out for me for a second. Uh, Melanie, you can go to the next slide. This is really fun um, geeking out stuff here that's actually vital to this work. So when you read through this passage in Greek, Paul says, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind is singular. So you, 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 your mind. And all of us having our, our individual minds renewed so that we together may discern what is the wise, the good, the pleasing thing. Do you see the shift he makes? All of us having our minds renewed by the scriptures so that we together might discern what is the wise way forward, the good, pleasing, perfect way of God forward. 
So I say all this to say that this work might seem like, I don't have the time to sit and like chew on Leviticus. But the invitation of the scripture, the invitation of your renewing mind is not that you do that by yourself, but that we do this together as a church community. We do this with your pastors and with leaders in our community. Back to Ryan McDonald's teaching. The work of discerning the wisdom in scriptures and the formation we're being invited to is, is part of the fact that it's communal literature. We do this together, not alone. And so once again, here in the life of collective, this is why we always are inviting each and every one of you into our integrated Bible study process. Where every single week, we send out a weekly Bible passage for you to, in the week ahead, read, meditate, pray through, study for yourself. And so this week it was Matthew 7, it was 2 Timothy 3, and it was James 1. And then we gather together to hear those texts taught and, and preached. And then we gather as discipleship groups to then detail what is the way of wisdom? What's the application? What's the formation that's coming out of what we're reading here? And so we've got this system built up for the sake of hopefully building all this, for us to be this kind of a community, one that's being formed into the image and likeness of Jesus, a people of wisdom. But that requires not that we all go off by ourselves by our Bibles, but that we are doing this together in a community. Now, I've looked through a few of these examples. I know some of you would desire that we go through more but the whole point is that the work of the church is that we are a people of the word, that we are entering into a life of doing this. And so if you want more of this, come back next week and the next week and the next week and the next week. If you want more of these examples, start reading and studying for yourself. If you want more of this, scan that QR code, baby, and find, get placed into a discipleship group. Because the invitation is formation through participation, and participation requires your intention, your desire to be this kind of a person. And that's the question. Do you desire to be this kind of a person? To find a life and wisdom of Jesus flowing through you in your relationships? Because you can't do it alone. You need the scriptures, and you need the scriptures in community. For our final practice of the series at collectivechurch.com slash current series, uh, this week we're going to be putting into practice the uh, spiritual discipline or practice of memorization of scripture, which is, as Romans 12 said, renewing our minds so that we can be formed wisdom kind of people through the filling of our minds with scripture. A couple of places in scripture that kind of attest and point to this is Psalm 119 verse 11 says, I have treasured, or as it can be translated, stored up or hidden your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you. What's the, I, so that I might not sin against you? I'm storing up your word in my heart. And heart doesn't mean I feel good about it. We've talked about this before, but the Hebrew, they don't have a word for brain. Your heart is your inner core, yourself. Your, it's your thinking, feeling, all of that is your heart. And so this is obviously meditation. I'm storing up your word in me. I'm hiding it away in me so that when I go out into my life, my automatic reaction to all the complexities of life is wisdom, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and self-control. Whereas John 15, 7, Jesus called it having his words remaining or abiding or staying or, or literally making their home in you bringing in the words of Jesus and the words of scripture and like, you know, you making a little corner in your heart and in your life for those words. Believing that as we do, the wisdom of those verses then become to shape us because we've got them up here constantly written into our, that they begin to be written into our lives. And so you can do this with Psalm 23, which is where we're going next week, or you can do this with whatever. To like what Ryan's working on right now in my own like life and memorization is from a couple weeks ago. Psalm 104 verse 23 says that man goes out to his work and to his labor until evening. And then verse 24 says, how, how countless are your works, God. You've made them all in wisdom. Apparently in the wisdom of God, there is a cycle of the man that goes out to his work for a particular amount of time and then he's done with the work for the day. And, and Ryan is not good at that. And so I've been trying to memorize Psalm 104. And some of you be like, that's out of context. Whatever, that's, we're in wisdom literature territory. I'm totally acknowledging the, the, the context of that as I bring this and apply this to Ryan goes out to his work and to his labor until evening. And this is part of God's wisdom in, in his way of orchestrating the universe. And so when the evening comes, I'm done. Dallas Willard writes, Bible memorization is absolutely fundamental to spiritual formation. He says, if I had to choose between all the disciplines of the spiritual life, I would choose Bible memorization because it's fundamental way of filling our minds with what it needs. 
And then he quotes from scripture, this book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth. That's where you need it, in your mouth. How does it get in your mouth? Memorization. Though Dallas Willard wrote extensively, more than just about anybody else, on the other practices of prayer and justice, of study and meditation, all these other things, what he's getting at here is the central vital role of memorization of how it plays in shaping our lives. And, and really, honestly, I, there are a few, maybe with exception of fasting, few spiritual practices in the life of the church that have been more weighed to the lay side than memorization. And if we're going for formation and not just look up on Google whenever I'm trying to think of a verse, but my, my character being changed because the goal is not information but formation, then this is exactly the sort of thing we're being called into. And so, as we wrap up the past eight weeks, um, I just want to say to all of you that have been here through it all, and even those of you that are joining us today, how thankful I've been for your you know, participation in this journey at, at each step of the way. My prayer has been that this series would reap fruit for years to come in your own Bible reading, but also in the life of our church. My hope is that within your discipleship groups and in our book clubs that you have found space to kind of play around and deconstruct with some of our pre-existing paradigms for scripture, all with Jesus still being our guide hopefully finding, I, I, I truly do hope that many of you that have been with us this have found a more robust and life-giving framework for scripture on the other side of these past eight weeks. This more life-giving framework that one more time, because memorization is really important. The library of ancient writings, both divine and human, that tell a unified story leading us to Jesus and forming us as his people. My prayer is in the coming years, not just that we would all become better Bible readers, but because we're better Bible readers, we would become better Bible doers, if I can borrow James' line of thought. All of this because, in the words of N.T. Wright, the Bible isn't simply a repository of true information about God, Jesus, and the hope of the world. It is rather part of the means by which, in the power of the Spirit, the living God rescues his people and his world and takes them forward on the journey toward his new creation and makes us agents of that new creation even as we travel. In this complex and often messy world, we have within us also found this often complex and messy Bible. And yet our belief is that this is the divine and human story. Jesus' belief, the one that we follow, his belief is that this is the divine and human story of God's promise. That I will be your God, you will be my people, and I will dwell among you. A promise that was fulfilled in the life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension, his sending of the spirit and Jesus' future return. And that is a library that I will gladly spend the rest of my life getting lost in and getting formed by. This sort of book that is not just something that's spoken to me once at one time, but continues to speak to our world today. If we have enough patience to sit and to listen and to say, speak for your servant is listening. Let's pray.